Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zelmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be talking with attorney Joseph Holscher about defending yourself post-TBI. This episode is brought to you by the Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are leaders in neurorecovery and experienced in treating complex concussion cases with dysautonomia, vertigo, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They have greatly helped me and many others. You can find them online at thefunctionalneurologycenter.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I recently launched the Brain Health Magazine, and be sure to grab your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also don't forget to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Joseph Holscher, and he is an attorney who regularly represents clients with TBI and other disabilities in criminal and civil court. He's a well-recognized and award-winning DUI lawyer and family lawyer, author of a book and several legal articles, and a regular speaker at legal training seminars. He is a managing attorney of Holscher Gabia Sapita PLLC law firm in San Antonio, Texas. So welcome to the, the podcast, Joseph. So happy to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me, Amy. I'm happy to be here. Well, before we get going, I just want to apologize to all our listeners. I'm getting over a cold and have a terrible cough, so I apologize in advance if you guys hear me coughing today. And Joseph is struggling with some seasonal allergies in Texas, so forgive us for our uh, raspy (laughs) voices and our coughs. Um, So, Joseph, I would love to have you just Give us a little bit of your background and how you came to working with um, TBI clients. So San Antonio has a huge military community. And as a result, in fact, we have a major um, military hospital here as well. So as a result of having lots of active duty reservists and retired military in our town, um, TBI has a higher profile here than it does in other places. So just in the course of my regular practice, I've encountered clients who come in and they've been arrested or they've got a child custody problem um, or child protective services is involved in their life because of their TBI symptoms mimicking other problems. And gradually I've just had to, educate myself about it but fortunately we have lots of good resources in san antonio because we do have lots of 
doctors who are really on the cutting edge of traumatic brain injury, PTSD, and, and other service-related injuries that are also experienced by civilians. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting with TBI and the symptoms that come with it, you know, unbalanced when they're walking and slurred speech, trouble recalling words, you know, all of that mimics being drunk or possibly being on drugs. And I know so many people who have been accused of being drunk and they're not, they haven't even had a drink, right? It's just their TBI presenting in a way that people that aren't educated think that they're just drunk. Um, you know, have you ever had cases of people who've been accused of being drunk um, and they actually weren't? Yeah, I mean, that's the number one reason that our clients with TBI are coming into contact with the legal system. Um, somebody thinks they're intoxicated while they're caring for their child. Um, right. Especially when they're driving, because officers mm-hmm. are trained to look for a checklist of symptoms, which you know, I'm looking at the Mayo Clinic's website and just mild traumatic brain injury has symptoms that are going to be huge red flags for, for most law enforcement. Uh, loss of consciousness for a few seconds to a few minutes, uh, a state of being dazed, confused, or disoriented, headache, nausea or vomiting, drowsiness, problems with speech, um, dizziness or loss of balance. These, these are all things that officers are trained nationally are hard symptoms of intoxication and most of them are not educated about TBI. Yeah. Yeah. I have a dear friend in Texas and I can't remember if it was San Antonio or Austin. I think she was driving between the two cities and she got pulled over and he accused her of being intoxicated. And, you know, he made her do the field sobriety test. She's like, I can't pass this on a normal day. Right. And, um, he, you know, he got combative with her and he ended up um, actually assaulting her. And, you know, it was all caught on oh. video. I know. And she has we, taken this opportunity. Too. Yeah. She has taken this opportunity. She, um, I, <laughs> I can't remember the name of her, um, her organization off the top of my head. Um, but she has taken this opportunity to, go around the country, not just Texas, um, and teach police and other first responders, you know, what the symptoms of TBI are. And, you know, I don't know the full details of her situation, but, you know, this is something that I've, I've heard regularly and it's very sad and it's, it's frightening for TBI survivors who do have those symptoms, right? Yeah, so it's down to the national training that officers receive, and and they receive it fairly regularly. In fact, in most states, uh, it's annually. They're not getting any training really related to mental health. If if they are, it's usually every couple years, and it's a short class. But officers across the country are taught two things that are bad for TBI survivors. One is that if they're making an arrest and somebody displays these symptoms, the officer, well, if they're making a stop, the officer should arrest the person unless the person can prove they're sober. It's just a public safety thing. If you think the guy might be intoxicated, get him off the road, let the court sort it out. It's not really a good civil liberties perspective. We're very sensitive to the people involved. 
but that's their training. The other training is if somebody is um, not completely cooperative, officers are taught to protect themselves and mm-hmm. escalate the use of force. For TBI survivors, sometimes complying quickly is just not an option. Trying to explain things to an officer is often perceived as backtalk or resistance according to their training. And so rather than de-escalating, they escalate. And it's a, it's a toxic combination that re- results in arrest, as then, like happened with your friend, a use of force. Um, and we see it very consistently. Um, and a lot of times when we're having these cases, I try to educate the arresting officers about what's going on. And, you know, I, I've seen some who were shocked and, and obviously um, – felt some more so in the way they treated my clients. And I've seen others who were like, look, man, this is what I'm trained to do, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's why survivors really have to take some steps to protect themselves. So wouldn't, you know, you just said that they're, they're, in, they're trained to take the person off the road unless they can prove that they're not intoxicated. But wouldn't a breathalyzer pretty much clear someone pretty quickly to get, to just carry on with their day? <laughs> So you would think, um, and in some cases, officers may have access to something called a portable breath test, which is something you can blow into on the side of the road. Those tests are not always admissible in court. They're pretty unreliable. Uh, and most officers don't have them for that reason. But officers really? are now being trained. Yeah. Yeah. And so they want to transport somebody to get a more reliable forensic breath test. But officers are being trained beyond that that if they're getting a, a zero, zero result for blood alcohol concentration, that they need to assume drugs. And this is in part because of the legalization wow. of marijuana. Um, you know? yeah. So, yeah. So what happens yeah. is we have DWI cases where we have clients who tested negative for alcohol. But it's really bad if somebody with TBI has a little bit of alcohol in their system because then the officer just assumes intoxication. Yeah, like if they're way below the legal limit, but they still have a little bit in their system. And, you know, I I personally, right. I completely quit drinking after, well, not right after. It took me about 10 months to learn how bad alcohol is for a brain injury. Um, but as soon as I learned all that, I completely stopped drinking alcohol just for the healing benefit, right? Um, however, you know, many do continue to drink and you know, this is important information for them. If you're going to drink, even just a drink, you know, maybe have somebody else drive. You know, uh, there's just such a high risk if you already have yeah, some of the symptoms. Yeah, we absolutely agree with you. My whole firm <laughs> would agree with you, Amy. Um, you know, and it's important for people to plan ahead. Like once you start drinking, particularly if there's an interaction between some medication that somebody's taking or TBI or some other condition, before you get the alcohol in your system, plan. Because once you get the alcohol in your system, your planning is not going to be as good. Yes, um, right. <laughs> but, you know, ride sharing is great. Um, having a DD is great. Uh, knowing that you're going to stay where you're at once you start drinking, you know, there's all kinds of planning that can go on there. Um, and that's the, the first step. But if you can avoid drinking for a survivor of TBI, that's probably the best advice, Amy, because um, with the common symptoms of TBI and alcohol, almost any, any officer is, is going to make that arrest. And they're going to assume that somebody's being dishonest when they're saying, like, I'm really not intoxicated. Right, right, right. 
Um, you know, I know that there is a law firm. Um, uh, his name is Michael Kaplan. Um, and they are in New York, I believe. Um, and they provide a free ID card. And I can get that link in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Um, and it's a very nice, it's like a thick, heavily laminated card, um, kind of like a credit card that you can carry in your wallet. And it has your name and an emergency contact on it. And then on the other side, it explains the symptoms of TBI and um you know, how they might present. And it's useful, you know, a DWI stop is going to be a little different, but like if you're just getting pulled over for something else, like maybe you were speeding or you had a headlight out, you know, it's just um, a handy tool to be able to share with the officer, at, you know, right away as soon as they're pulling you over. Um, but, you know, do you have specific tips that you offer to TBI survivors um, when having to deal with police or first responders? Yeah, Amy, that's actually our first tip. And, and we um, give that piece of advice to people on the autism spectrum, um, individuals with PTSD and, and TBI survivors is if you can get an ID card or a laminated card, the more official looking, the the better, um, preferably that's been endorsed by a national agency and has that extra layer of credibility behind it. Um, and just turn that over with your license and insurance if you get pulled over so that the officer doesn't hear somebody's speech pattern and think that's a sign of intoxication and escalate mm -hmm. the stop. Um, officers are now being trained to look for these cards. And while their mental health training and, and medical training is sorely lacking, if you hand them the information right there, more and more officers are going to clue in that this is something that they should pay attention to. So that's, that's the first thing right there. The second thing is it's really important to follow all of the kind of uh, best practices when interacting with law enforcement. When you get pulled over, um, you know, put your flashers on to signal that you're complying. Pull over at a safe place. So, you know, on the side of a six-lane freeway, maybe not the best spot. But take the first exit that you can safely take. Go to a parking lot or other public place where the officer will have room for his vehicle as well, and you can avoid traffic. Keep both hands on the steering wheel. Turn off your radio. Put the window down. Get your information together after the officer comes up so he has a clear view of your hands when you're moving around in the passenger compartment, and have that information ready to go. If you, if you have a card like you're talking about, you can just paperclip one of those to your insurance information, and then hand it to the officer while you're getting out your driver's license. Mm. Uh, these Great are all idea. signs to an officer that you are complying and you are not going to be a problem. And that, that ratchets down their tension tremendously. Um, I just want to back up to one of the points you made about you can get off the current road you're on and drive to a parking lot. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand that. So can you elaborate on that part a little bit more? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, when you see those lights behind you, everybody gets that little surge of adrenaline, yes. you know, you know yes. you're trying to get out you of the way and you're getting bit. pulled over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but officers for the most part prefer it too. What they don't like is when somebody doesn't respond and just keeps driving for a while because they don't know if the person's ignoring them or there's something wrong with them. But if you put on your flashers so they know you've seen them and you're aware of them, most officers would prefer 
that you pull over someplace where they're not at risk of getting struck by a car. Because, of course, they got to stand next to your vehicle during most of this process. Um, so you're absolutely allowed to do that. You're not evading an officer if your intention is to pull over and you're just going to do it a little further down the road or where it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Um, you know, I know that that is, um, and, and also, you know, if it's, if it's dark and it's nighttime and you're on a two lane road and, you know, you're just not sure where to pull over, um, you know, if you know that there's maybe a turnoff ahead, um, or, you know, a gas station or somewhere where you can pull off, you certainly have the right to drive to that location. And again, I think the officer appreciates it, um, you know, if it's dark in a two-lane road. So Yeah, and it's really important for TBI survivors, too, because um, if you're having that interaction on the side of the road, I've had a lot of clients where that exacerbated the symptoms. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, I had a client who had some light sensitivity. Now you've got flashing lights, you've got headlights coming by, you've got reflections off of the reflective road signs, you've got taillights on another side of the freeway. And all of this was really causing her a lot of problems. You can see it in the video. She's trying to cover her eyes. She's looking down. She's looking away from the officer. All of that to the officer, though, looks incredibly evasive. So he's getting more and more frustrated. And she's like, hey, you know, this is just a little too much for me. Um, So getting away from all that noise, the wind from the passing cars, um, you know, so the officer doesn't have to shout at you and you're not trying to shout back. Getting to a calmer, safer place helps manage the symptoms for a lot of people. You know, that's a really good point about the flashing lights from the police car. Um, I know for me, Especially at night. During the daytime, they weren't quite as offensive for me. Um, but at nighttime, those flashing lights were really, really challenging um, for a, a good couple years after my brain injury. Um, they don't bother me as much anymore, but I know that there's other people that they really bother. And um, people who are prone to seizures, you know, those flashing lights can be really problematic. So is there ever any way to ask the officer to turn those off? I'm, I'm doubting it, but I thought I'd ask. You, you can. And in a, in a DUI or DWI stop, they should be turning that off anyway, because they're going to perform a, a test called the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which is an eye test. And the flashing lights can cause a false positive on that test. Um, but, you know, here in Texas, a lot of our law enforcement are using SUVs and the headlights flash and the, and the mm-hmm. warning lights flash too. Mm-hmm. And, and their response is to have you stare at that and then turn around for a little bit, but it's still going on for somebody who doesn't have a brain injury. Um, that brief break where you're facing away from the lights can mitigate that effect, but it can linger for somebody with TBI. Yes. And some folks with TBI are just going to feel the the HGN the horizontal case nystagmus yeah anyway. yeah yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> I know I yeah. would have so, my minus stigmas totally was really bad yeah. yeah yeah in fact that's something that should be on the card <laughs> that's a good when you're point telling them about the symptoms because that's the quick and dirty test that most of them are going to use that's the test they rely on the most it's yeah. if performed correctly it's the most reliable field sobriety test um. And most officers will tell you that they know whether somebody's intoxicated or not just off that test. Uh, but then the other tests involve, you know, standing on one leg and counting uh, or <laughs> estimating time and then walking heel toe with your arms at your side while, you know, staring in the distance. 
uh, and not at your feet. And these are things that are hard for everybody. I couldn't have done those at all in the first two years after my brain injury. <laughs> I'd have fallen right yeah, over. Yeah. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I have difficulty with them now and I do practice them because I do them in court. You know, <laughs> I've seen officers <laughs> have an officer come out and demonstrate for a jury and I've seen them screw it up, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. It's hard. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard. And if there's anything impairing your balance or your vision, it's uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to kind of shift focus a little bit. We've been talking a lot about DUI, um, but you also deal with uh, like child custody. Um, and I unfortunately have heard so many heartbreaking stories about how the one parent, you know, suffers a brain injury um, and the other parent basically tries to take the child away so that they're not fit to be a parent anymore, um, which is very heartbreaking and I'm sure that you have seen these cases. Um, You know, what can you tell us about these situations? You know, when people get married or in a serious relationship, um, they have an expectation in their mind that the other person is going to be essentially the same person that they got in touch with originally that they fell in love with. And TBI changes people. So, and, and also the symptoms initially can be far worse than they might be later, but the suddenness of TBI, this isn't like a degenerative disease. It's something that comes from a sudden trauma. Um, it's a shock. You know, we see it anytime there's a big change in relationships, uh, a spouse gets deployed or comes back from deployment. Um, you know, a child gets injured. Any of these big shocks really test the relationship. The problem for folks with TBI is that when one spouse or significant other suddenly can't handle the situation anymore, a TBI survivor, uh, particularly early on, is ill-prepared to kind of stand up for themselves. So there's a real imbalance in court. You know, if if somebody, particularly in, in cases where it's affecting people's uh, mood and we're seeing mood swings or yeah. you've got depression and people just can't, you know, fight back. Um, they make bad witnesses. They don't seek legal advice right away. A lot of times they just capitulate because they're in a bad place. You know, they're already trying to build a new life and come to terms with their new reality. And now their relationship's falling apart. Uh, and it can it can bring out the worst in people, uh, but then when they go to court and they're being judged by somebody who doesn't know them and maybe doesn't understand their condition, you know it's a recipe for disaster. So there are yeah. some pretty sad stories there. Um, we've had clients both in divorce cases who, you know, really loved their kids, but also you know saw the change in their kids' attitudes towards them. Because suddenly dad wasn't the same anymore. And then the most scary situation for us is when Child Protective Services gets involved and yeah. they start talking about, like, termination of parental rights. We had a really yes. sad case yeah. where um, dad was killed in a car accident, mom was a passenger, and survived with TBI. And there was a question about whether she could care for the kids. The state got involved. And unfortunately, you know, dad's parents, the grandparents, 
never got along with her. So they used that immediately as an opportunity to try and take the kids from her. Um, and that was a year and a half process before we were able to, to get them home. So that's another place that, that TBI survivors need to be aware that they have rights um, and they need to seek out people to help them exercise their rights to understand TBI. And they need to be willing to go to their healthcare professionals too and ask for help, not just medically or psychologically, but in court. Yeah. Um, that's a blessing about San Antonio. We've got a lot of experts here, a lot of docs who are willing to go to court. And, and our judges are a little more educated too. But um, in other jurisdictions, when I practice sometimes, and the judge is like, what's TBI? I'm like, okay. No. Mm-hmm. We're going to really need to sit down and educate this judge because my, my client's going to get on the stand and look different. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you said, you know, it, it, there's going to be a sudden and drastic change immediately after the brain injury, but, you know, fortunately our brains have the ability to heal and, you know, two, three years down the road, they're not going to be the same level that they are in that first year, two years. I know for me that first year, I couldn't even comprehend, like, I don't have children. And I'm like, man, I can't even imagine if I had kids, how I would take care of them on top of my TBI. Um, So I have a lot of respect for those mamas out there doing that. Um, But yeah, you know, I can see where, you know, you've already had an ugly divorce or whatnot. and, And now they don't think you're capable of taking care of your children. And it's just, it's heart wrenching to watch these things happen. And, you know, term, those permanent termination of rights, that's such a drastic, drastic, um, you know, move. Um, yeah. But I it, see it, it happen is. a lot, especially to the dads, um, the, the dads that have had a TBI, because, you know, if they get that anger and paranoia and the lack of filter and, you know, just on top of all the other symptoms and, um, you know, they think that they're not capable of being a parent. Um, and it's very sad. Very, very sad. So I'm glad that yeah, there are lawyers I mean, like you out there. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, it's just as a society, we don't do a great job of giving support to family members of survivors and spouses. And so I think a lot of times, you know, they're not being given the tools to understand the TBI and to kind of deal with that massive change in the relationship. And one good thing about Child Protective Services is we get access to a lot of resources like that um, that are family-based and family-oriented, trying to treat the family as a unit. But, you know, where the family is already collapsed or you're missing a spouse, it's you are dealing with kind of a faceless state agency. And it's terrifying for anybody to have that kind of authority just step into your life and question whether or not you should see your children. Um, But when you're dealing with TBI and the symptoms they can point to, it makes the fight even harder because you have to acknowledge like, yeah, I do have these symptoms and you have to make progress in showing that you can control them. Um, At the same time, you're kind of being alienated because they may have stepped in and removed your kids. So it's, you know, I, I do this kind of work because there aren't many employers doing that kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. But exactly. it's, it's rewarding. It's rewarding ultimately because, you know, if people want to be good parents, TBI is survivable. So this isn't like our, some of our parents with serious drug issues, for example, 
who really don't care about their kids as much as their habits, you know? Yeah. Here we've got people who really are child-focused and care. We just have to figure out a route to make sure that we can prove they're safe, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to help heal the family with, with all the changes. And, you know, I just think it's important for anyone seeking a lawyer for any realm, you know, whether it's personal injury or car accident or family law, um, to find a lawyer that does understand TBI. Because, you know, if that lawyer doesn't get TBI, um, they're going to have a lot harder time really defending you. So um, I encourage you to really question the lawyers when you call around and make sure that they understand TBI. Um, I was very fortunate that my lawyer himself had had one like 20 years ago in a car accident. Um, So he really, really understood it (laughs) from a deep personal level. Um, So Joseph, um, we're just about out of time. Um, first of all, I want to make sure you give our listeners your website so they can find you. Okay. Our law firm is Holscher Gebbia Sepeda PLLC. So the website is hgclaw.com. Hgclaw.com. Perfect. That's right, and then. Amy. Secondly, do you um, just have any final parting thoughts, words, words of wisdom for our listeners? Um, there's a learning curve, but having TBI doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're not a fit parent, and it doesn't mean that you can't live a rewarding life. So have hope. Things mm-hmm. do get better. They have for my clients at least. Absolutely. It can seem really dim in the beginning, but it does get better. So, um, and I just wanted to make a quick mention. I looked up the ID card while we were um, chatting, and it is um, DeCaro and Kaplan is the law firm, and the website is brainlaw.com, and you can click through to to get your free ID card. And um, like I said, it's a very well done. It looks very professional, and it also has the emergency contact on it as well. So anyone that wants to check that out. It up right now. Yeah, yeah, it's brainlaw.com. Um, so Joseph, thank you so very much for being here today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very much, Amy. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Very, very important information for you guys. And just a reminder, you can always find any previous episodes at facesoftbi.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Velmer. And don't forget to join Amy's TBI Tribe on Facebook. And just another big thank you to our sponsor, the Functional Neurology Center. You can find them online at thefunctionalneurologycenter.com. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone. And I will see you next episode.